This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Ezra Spear, who is the uh, VP of product and software at The Other Machine Company, which makes uh, a remarkably accessible desktop milling machine. And in particular, just today, the day that we're speaking, which is May 24th, um, announced a new uh, Other Mill Pro. So uh, welcome, Ezra. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Cool. So let, let's begin by talking a bit about um, what the Other Mill is, what is novel about it. We, we've already spoken with Other Machines founder, Danielle Applestone, um, uh, who, uh, who came on the podcast last year and uh, talked a bit about her, her philosophy. But uh, I really want to dig into, you know, what, what went into this idea of a desktop milling machine and, and what it is that makes it work. And the other mill pro too, right? Like, I mean, the, the upgrades, what's different? Absolutely. Yeah. So in the world of manufacturing, um, there's a lot of tools that people use. And I think as uh, makers have been really excited about 3D printers and bringing prototyping and fabrication out of uh, factories and into homes and small businesses and schools, um, people have started to get interested in the other machines that they've got sitting around in those factories and workshops. And one of the most common machines you'll see out in the world is a milling machine. Milling machines, uh, they call them the mother machine. And the way that it works, if you're not familiar, is a sort of spinning drill bit that sticks up and down. Uh, you mount a piece of material, whether it be metal or wood or plastic, and the drill bit spins and cuts through the material until you have uh, your part in exactly the shape that you want it. And you know, you've seen these probably as big, manually operated, uh, heavy steel machines, but Oftentimes now they're uh, computer controlled, and they call those uh, CNC mills. And you know CNC mills are used in all scales of manufacturing, from making small metal parts to iPhone cases and other smartphone cases, glasses, parts that go into almost everything we buy. Uh, they're milled. And what's so great about a mill is that you can use a really wide variety of materials, anything again from metal to plastic to woods and so on. And they're really adaptable. So you can make all kinds of shapes, both sort of two and a half dimensional, so things that are have flat faces, but also are, that are curved. Um, and they can do really precision work as well. And so, you know, given that there's so many applications for milling machines in uh, manufacturing writ large, a lot of folks are, you know, interested in using this technology uh, themselves. And that's really where the other mill comes in. So, you know, when I think of, uh, milling machines in factories and in you know tech shop or something. These are big, noisy, messy machines with uh, streams of coolant, you know, shooting out of hoses and and uh, drenching everything. Um, serious uh, flying material, risk of serious injury, um, 
is that uh, is that what an another mill is? The fundamental technology is the same, but the experience of using it couldn't be more different. The other mill is, uh, you know, the size of a of a computer. It's about an eighteen inch square, uh, eighteen inch cube. Uh, sits on your desk. It is quiet enough to use in an office setting, and uh, it's safe. It has lots of safety features um, that make it so that a layperson or an engineer can learn how to use it without, you know, years of safety training. So, so what kinds of things do you see people um, you see people making on these? Well, I would say that the most uh, common use for the other mill is actually in the world of le- of electronics. So, hmm. uh, folks will use the other mill to prototype their own circuit boards. And if you've tried to get a prototype circuit board before, you know that there's kind of two ways of doing it. You can use a chemical etching process and use nasty chemicals and wear lots of uh, protective clothing, or you can send them away to a board house and it might take a couple weeks to get a circuit board back. And you know, if you're in the middle of designing a product, waiting two weeks to get feedback on your design is really, really slow. And a lot of folks are using the other mill because it allows them to get almost instantaneous feedback on their electronics design. So we're talking an hour instead of a week. Mm. Uh, so it saves a ton of time. And really, in this case, I think time is money more than more than money. It's true. I, I have I still have my other mill from the Kickstarter, the Gen 1 Kickstarter other mill, and I use it and it, it works pretty well. And I definitely agree. I definitely like to use it for, for prototyping circuit boards, like things that need to fit into other things. So like, I mean, I usually can use a board house for like just kind of rectilinear stuff but like if it's stuff i know i'm gonna have to iterate on i really definitely prefer doing it at home but my main questions i guess with the other mail that i have now and i've read your press release and i know that the new machine addresses some of these the like sort of the trace and space um rules um as well as doing double-sided as well as doing uh plated vias um can be issues for me because i often find that um it's good for prototyping like simple stuff and looks like feels like stuff but i also find that i have to often redesign before I go to my final um, professionally produced PCB. So, I mean, I'm sure other users experience that as well. I'm sure you guys have thought about that going forward with the new version. So, like, um, how does that work in the Other Mill Pro? So we just announced the Other Mill Pro, and it is in direct uh, response to a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from our current customers. Um, what what we hear when we talk to engineers who are who are designing products is that they want to use a tool for prototyping that gives them prototypes that are as close as possible to a final product. And you know every step uh, that they have to do between prototype and final product is uh, another risk that they're doing as part of that, de- that design process. And so uh, engineers and entrepreneurs want to eliminate as many risks as possible uh, as quickly as possible. And so the other mill pro uh, takes that into consideration in its new features. And so the biggest thing that we've done is we've increased the the precision and the reliability of the machine. And so uh, when it comes to circuit boards, we're talking about double-sided boards that have uh, six by six trace and space. So we're wow. talking about um, using surface mount integrated circuits that are the integrated circuits you'd be using in a production design. So, so to take a step back um, for our listeners who may not be electrical engineers, when we talk about... Um, Six, six and six mills. Um, a mill in this context is actually a, a thousandth of an inch. It is a milli inch um, because this industry is perverse. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about a desktop milling machine which can um, hold a tool that's only six thousandths of an inch wide and cut a channel that is also six thousandths of an inch wide. Um, 
That's some pretty serious mechanical engineering that goes into that. And um, then separated from another channel by six thousandths of an inch. Yeah. As yeah, well, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So like um so so the other question that I have, um, so you know, when you're making a, a circuit board, it's important to do vias which connect the trace which connect the, the wiring on the top side of the board to the bottom side of the board. And usually a board house will drill a hole and then plate it with uh, you know, electro uh, um electrically conductive stuff. Um, but that's difficult to achieve at home. Usually, I just do um, drill a big old hole and stick a wire through it and solder it on both sides. But is there what? What's the official other mill, other machine company recommended way of doing plated through holes, and vias? Yeah, right now the best way of doing vias is either to use a wire like you were talking about, um, or to use uh, via pins. And these are a couple things that have been around for a long time. But basically, the idea here is that we need to have an electrical connection from one side of the of the copper board to the other side through the insulator in the middle. And there, uh, I've seen a couple kickstarters for some interesting kind of home based uh, electroplating systems, yeah. but nothing's really come to market yet that meets the needs of this of this uh of this application. So right now, uh, via pins are pretty easy to use. Basically, you just stick them through and you solder, solder one side and the other side's already touching the copper. So it's not too much work, but there's a couple cases in your design where you need to be aware of that. So in a lot of typical circuit board designs, you'll put these vias underneath, let's say, a, a really small surface mount IC. Yeah. And it's a little bit harder to do that on, on this machine. So that is one of the sort of design rules that you need to be aware of when you're going into using a machine like this. But for the most part, you know, we've, we've focused on kind of the biggest uh, challenges that uh, mill boards have uh, for this release. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's really, I mean, even for me, I think that the just stepping up to, to doing six and six trace and space and being able to use, a, you know, much more variety, wider variety of modern electrical components is definitely a big step up. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. Um, I guess another question I have is beyond the circuit board manufacturing stuff, I know that you guys also target a lot at kind of the Etsy crowd and the homemakers and more crafty people and less hackery people. So like uh, what kinds of things can this machine do for do for those guys and girls? Well, it's interesting. I think for this machine, uh, we're calling it the Other Mill Pro because we're really focused on the needs of a professional audience. And so when I say professional, basically I mean somebody who's spending their day getting paid to, you know, uh, getting paid to design things, yeah, uh, whether yeah. that be a mechanical part or whether that be an electrical electrical circuit. Mm -hmm. More and more, we've learned that a professional audience really needed more precision. And as a business, we found that we are getting a lot of traction in in the professional world, but we couldn't quite uh, always meet their needs. And that's really what the Other Mill Pro is all about. Nice. So uh, ultimately, though, I think uh, whether you're a hobbyist or a craft entrepreneur or an engineer, the biggest thing that matters is ease of use. Because if you've ever been in a CNC shop before, you'll see control panels that are just like streams of letters and numbers and keyboards that look like they're from the 70s. And that really is the state of the art in most of the industry. Um, going from let's say SolidWorks or Eagle or KiCad to a part requires all of these steps and training that most people just don't have time to go through. And so I think our biggest contribution um, outside of the machine itself has been in, in the software that we provide to our users. It's called OtherPlan. And OtherPlan is a really simple way of controlling a milling machine. Basically, uh, like for circuits, you just load in your board file and um, just click a couple settings and hit mill. Does it take all 
it doesn't take Altium directly, but you can export Gerbers from Altium, yeah. and we have guides for that. We actually, with this release, are partnering with Altium on their Circuit Maker team, oh, and they're actually doing doing a contest to give away the first other mill pro. So that's that's pretty exciting too. Mm. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is to create a experience where people can don't have to learn to be machinists to be able to machine parts. That's pretty cool. Um, so so if you want to bring something from SolidWorks, if you want to do some uh, some two and a half D machining. Um, what's the workflow there like? So it's a little bit more complicated than with the circuit board um, because you need to use third-party CAM software. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, CAM start, stands for computer-aided machining. And what that does is it translates the three-dimensional design that you have as a step file or a SOLIDWORKS file and turns it into tool paths that a machine like the other wheel can run. And so um, you know, your design in SOLIDWORKS has a lot of information about the part, but it doesn't know, say, uh, what material the part is made out of or what size a billet of aluminum you're starting with when you want to mill it out. And CAM gives you the opportunity to configure and set that up. Um, right now, the truth is, is that the best products for CAM are commercial, but they're getting a lot cheaper. Uh, we work really closely with Autodesk on Fusion 360, and uh, we that's one of the options that we recommend for people. I am really excited for like five or six years from now when there's some kind of really amazing open source CAM library available, but the amount of R&D that goes into the number crunching and data to do really high quality CAM is very expensive. And, you know, there's been a lot of efforts at MIT at the Center for Bits and Atoms to try to build out those uh, those algorithms in an open way, but there's still a ways to go. And I think that's going to be kind of one of the, the big things that comes in the future of manufacturing is more accessible mm -hmm. geometry and uh, uh, planning libraries. And the number of like firmware specific, uh, you know, formats that you have to support in these um, in these packages, I mean, you open up the the list in any in in HSM Works or, or any other CAM software of uh, supported hardware, and it's just immense. And you're going back and and supporting uh, CNC machines that have been in use since like the 70s. It's crazy. I it, it's it's no uh, wonder that it hasn't emerged yet as a good open source uh, you know toolkit. Well, well, thankfully, thankfully, all the machines, although they're different, are all operating on a on a communication standard that's been in use since uh, the the 50s. G code, <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. G, G code exists, and that's one of the best things we can say about it. Um, <laughs> it it works. Uh, it's it's a very low level language that describes the motion of a CNC machine, and it's used by any CNC machine, whether it's a milling machine, a lathe, an industrial robot. They all use some form of G code. Of course, they all speak different dialects, but fundamentally, you're working with the same kinds of operations, and that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting about uh, milling from the kind of other mill and other mill pro perspective is because we create the machine and we create the software, we've done a lot of testing with different materials. We can actually uh, have recommended configurations. So we call it feeds and speeds in, in the CNC world. But, you know, if you have a, you know, Haas milling machine, you, you know, can't look up how quickly you should mill out aluminum. It's just information that isn't available online because 
every application is different and machine shops all have their own way of doing things. And uh, I think what's really starting to happen is that more and more people as they use these tools are able to kind of constrain the problem enough that they can have a really good experience. And so for us, one of the reasons why we started and we still focus a lot on circuit board milling is that it allows us to really fine tune the software experience and all the settings so that we know people will be, be able to have success without spending a ton of time just doing configuration. Yeah. And, uh, you know, mills are almost, they're almost too generic. You can use them for so many different kinds of uh, products that in some ways I think people haven't been specific uh, about how to do this work because they haven't needed to or mm. it hasn't made sense to. I think, well, I think that's starting to change. I think a lot of people got like when the whole 3D printing um, consumer consumer facing 3D printing thing, you know, started a few years ago. I think people got really excited about the idea of, you know, just having a, you know, another type of computer that you can just push a button on and be instantly gratified. Mm-hmm. And I think really had a tendency to neglect all the the craftsmanship that goes into using tools, even if they're computer controlled tools. I mean, a computer is still a tool and you can still make beautiful things using computer controlled tools. But I think people are now kind of waking up a bit more to the the artisanship that goes into making stuff because there really isn't any kind of machine tool where you can just push a button and have it be okay. Even with 3D printing, you have to know right. about how you're designing stuff right. and setting up the job and everything. And I like that that we're getting more sensitive to that. Yeah, and I feel like CNC milling has emerged uh, as an area of interest now that everyone has realized that 3D printing isn't just a push-button thing. Well, I think what's so interesting to me about 3D printing is that it's been such a great gateway to manufacturing for so many people. And it's allowed people to realize and really uh, experience the fact that you can do a digital design on your computer and make it into a 3D object. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the challenges is that every manufacturing process has trade-offs and has design constraints. And so, you know, with 3D printing, it's things like overhangs. Um, and people learn how to design parts that are appropriate for that kind of process. And I think because 3D printing has been such a gateway for so many people, um, they have a very particular set of expectations about what is manufacturable, which maybe doesn't match when you're making more than than one part. Yeah, right. And what's great about this ecosystem of products that's coming out, whether it's 3D printing or laser or CNC mill and vacuum forming, so on, is that you really, if you put them together, you can make almost anything. And right. I yeah. think anyone that tries to sell you a machine that does everything, um, probably they know that there's actually a lot of different machines that, that you need to be able to do everything. And it's part of a, a larger ecosystem. Um, yeah, you know, the, it, it takes a lot of craft, a lot of artistry, a lot of, you know, engineering understanding to mill something. But it, it, it seems like the, the basic constraints could be imposed by software. Right. To, to let you know if something is machinable to help you refine your design so that it's, you know, better machinable. Absolutely. I think part of it is about whether something is machinable and, and part of it is just the practicalities of operating and running all these different machines. Um, you know, it's it's funny. People think of OMC as a hardware company because we sell these machines and we have a manufacturing facility and and all of that. But um, I think we're just as much software, if not more software, than we are hardware. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, just the stuff that you guys, the stuff, sorry to cut you off. I just want to gush about how much I like your software. Because, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you guys add a lot of stuff to the workflow that, from my perspective as a user, just cuts down a lot of the time. Like the like the automatic uh, Z-depth setting function when you change the tool. 
um, you know, in, in historical Bridgeport machines, you have to manually set the the Z point where the zero thing is. Um, but the other mill has one of those newfangled electronic systems where it just very slowly lowers the tool down until it touches the bed, and then it locks that setting in as the reference point. And it's pretty amazing because, like, yeah. there aren't that many classical machine tools that that do that kind of thing, except for the really fantastic, fantastically expensive ones. Or like how there's a yeah uh, machine tools that cost ten times as much often don't do that. Often don't have auto zeroing on the Z axis. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like when you're like fixturing something to the bed, like your your software knows what the fixture that the user is going to be using looks like and where the holes on it. So you as the user just have to fixture it in and put the bolts in where you want it. But then you can go into the software and just click which bolts that you're using. And then it knows how to how to plan around that. And without having that software functionality actually built into the machine itself, because um, I've used machines that don't, that don't have that functionality built into the machine itself, and it adds a whole lot of design time up front. And it's just really nice having all those features. Yeah, well, th well, thank you for saying that. Uh, we put a lot, of, we put a lot of work into trying to make that possible. Um, it's so funny. Our VP of hardware uh, talks about how he wants the, our machine to disappear. That so much of the experience of using a machine like ours should just be software, and it should be kind of protecting you from yourself. Yeah. Um, but allowing you the full capacity of using a machine like this. So it's, uh, it's a lot of work and it's a, a lot of fun to really figure out um, what people are trying to accomplish and really make those workflows as easy and as, as simple as possible. Yeah. Now, just to play the devil's advocate here about um, usability, you know, there, there's also the camp of people that say that if you make a tool that's usable by idiots, you know, only idiots are going to use it. And like the real pro power users are going to be afraid of like, you know, I mean, it's the whole Mac versus PC thing, right? Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's really easy to use, but people who really know what they're doing might be afraid of, you know, how do you, how do you balance those things in the design process of a tool like this? Well, that's a really great question. And it's something that we think about all the time. Ultimately, I think the best rule of thumb is to really understand uh, your user and really understand what they need. Um, I spent a lot of time talking with old school machine shop machinists, and they're amazing people who have spent decades learning how to operate these machines and um, have just a, a wealth of, of experience that I think is difficult for us to, to capture in software. But they're so used to having these these broken or difficult to use tools that doing things that, that allows them to spend more time thinking about the interesting problems and less time thinking about the, the boring stuff. So in, in the example that you gave earlier about, you know, automatically locating the tip of your tool, that's, that's something that, you know, there's not really much of an advantage to do manually. Uh, it just takes time and it's tedious and it's error prone. So finding those, uh, those processes that that could be automated and you don't sort of lose anything by automating them and then allowing the the technician or the operator the user or the designer to spend more time on the creative parts i think is is where you ultimately need to land but what's great about g code and what's great about these machines is ultimately everything is kind of open um, you can look at the code that's being sent you can write it yourself and there's nothing prevent there's nothing requiring you for using these automated processes so it could be as manual as you want it to be um, but we find that very few people do that mm. so i'm really curious to hear about exactly how you guys managed to uh, to improve the other mill to create the other mill pro was, mm -hmm. was this um, you know hardware revisions firmware revisions uh, changes to the control system uh, what did it take to bring the level of precision down from uh, 10 mils to six mils the 
biggest uh, and most visible feature on the Pro is a new custom-designed spindle motor. Mm-hmm. And this is manufactured just for the other mill. And, and the biggest change here is that it increases the maximum spindle speed from about 16,000 RPM to 26,000 RPM. And so this Whoa. is like super inside baseball for machinists, but... Um, Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the quality of your final product depends on how well you're able to optimize the feeds and speeds that you use to mill out your product. Mm-hmm. And so that means how quickly are you cutting through it in a linear way? How quickly do you uh, plunge down into the material? And how fast does the does the tool spin? Mm-hmm. So you'll hear people talk a lot about chip load. And you want to use the cutting edges of those bits in the most optimized way possible. And in our case, because we're using little bits that are, you know, ten thousandths of an inch, even uh, you know, a sixty-fourths of an inch, these uh, these are really, really small bits. Um, they need to spin really, really fast in order to cut out the optimal amount of material on each pass. And mm-hmm. so, uh, kind of the smaller you go, the faster you need to go. Mm-hmm. And Got so it. this lets the the bits work much better. And and what does uh, creating a higher RPM motor entail? Why did it have to be uh, custom made rather than just sort of ordered from you know one of the innumerable uh, DC motors that you'll find on on DigiKey or something? Well, you know, every application is a little bit different. And for us, one of the features that we are looking for on these motors is to have a really good, uh, really well balanced motor. And so we worked with a really great manufacturer here in California called Coco Motion and worked with them for a number of months on this design. But it's balanced to the same kind of requirements that you'd apply to hard disk drives and turbines. And that, in addition to helping reduce vibration, that can harm the quality of the milling product. Uh, It also makes it quieter. Hmm. And so factors like that are really important. And then also optimizing for the right RPMs, winding it correctly so that it has the right kinds of uh, 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 torque that are applied at the various speeds. Those are the kinds of things we look for. I find more more hardware companies, when they're getting to future revisions, um, are kind of going down to actually the component level as well. You know, Formlabs on the Form 2 uh, custom design the galvanometers um, from the ground up as mm-hmm. well, which is basically the same thing as a as a motor. And I'm sure that there are other um, companies as well that, yeah, it seems like you really have to get down into the component component level. It's really important. And I think this is true both in software and in hardware. It's good to be really self-aware about what makes you and your company and your product unique. Uh, if you are you know, building a company, you might not necessarily need to build your own CRM or sales software or social media management software, let's say, because those are problems that are really common across a lot of companies and organizations. But if you care about, in this case, you know, a precise machine that's really reliable and the primary moving part is a motor, it makes sense to invest a lot of resources into making sure that's the that's the right part for the for well, the. It's job. also interesting knowing like when when is the right time to do that because I know that the first rev of all these off the shelf machines are are built with off-the-shelf parts. You know, if, if you're Apple, you can design your own motor from from the, from day one, but if you're a startup, you'll get yourself into big trouble if you start trying to do that. So I think it's also important to, exactly. to think about when, when do you make that crossover. Well, and if you look at the Kickstarter other mill that you have or uh, the V2 other mill that we've been selling for the last year and a half, the spindle motor we used was a quadcopter motor that you can get from Hobby King. And those are, they're fantastic. They work, uh, they wear out, but when they do, they're only... 
you know, 10 bucks to get a new one. So uh, as a startup building a product that's just trying to gain traction and really tease out what problems we need to be focused on solving, it was fantastic. And it, 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 those machines are amazing. But we realized that to take it to the next level, you sort of have to invest a little bit deeply, uh, more deeper. And what's so great is we have super awesome component suppliers who are willing to sort of go to the drawing board and say, okay, what, you know, how do you need it wound? What do you need the balance to be? And working with folks like that is a pleasure because they're super experts in their fields and we're able to get the benefit of their wisdom um, while still making sure that you know we provide the right product ultimately to our customers. And now it's time to go to our tools segment, which is where uh, we go around and discuss the favorite, our favorite things that we like to use in our jobs. And appropriately for this episode, since Ezra, you make a tool, tell us something about you know, the tools that you rely on, the stuff you use every day that makes your job possible. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I've loved about this job is just the exposure to tools I get on a daily basis. Everything from uh, run-out indicators to, uh, to gauges to digital calipers and things like that. But I want to go a little bit more basic with, with my tool pick today. Uh, I really love my Bose noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> uh, I work in a factory. There's hammering. There's uh, milling. There's always something distracting going on. And I got these really fantastic fantastic but kind of expensive uh, in-ear noise-canceling headphones. Uh -huh. And when I have those in, I can turn on some music and people have to like stick their hand in front of my face to get my attention. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was I was skeptical because I, of course, have been on flights before and I see all those uh, those business travelers with their, you know, fancy headphones or whatever. But um, it really allows me to focus in a world where there's just so many distractions all the time. And it was totally worth the investment because I use them every single day. One of the things that's interesting about these headphones, I did a little bit of research on noise-canceling headphones before I bought some and looked up the wire cutter and all kinds of reviews, but I guess uh, Bose has a really key patent on noise-canceling technology, and mm. there is just nobody that can compete with them on the algorithm side. And so for the next few years, we're stuck with uh, $300 Bose headphones because they did get the patent, and you know that's how the patent system works. So you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens once that expires and whether there's more innovation that'll happen. But for now, they've really got the market. Huh. I, I own uh, those in-ear Bose headphones too, and they are brilliant. I I not only wear them every time I'm on a plane, I also um, use them to talk on the phone when I'm walking down the street um, to the frustration of the people I, I talk to on the phone because uh, they, they make it very easy for me to hear what they're saying. They don't do quite as good a job uh, helping them hear what I am saying. But I, I love them nevertheless. All right. And now we move on to our favorite segment, which is called Click Spiral. This is where um, each of us talks about something that's been occupying our browser tabs lately, something that, that we've been really you know diving into on Wikipedia or elsewhere, and we inflict the Click Spiral upon you, the listeners. If you have something that you'd like to send in for us to talk about on Click Spiral, you can send us an email at hardware at O'Reilly.com. David and I will look, we'll open some tabs, and uh, and we might talk about it on a future episode of the, the O'Reilly Hardware podcast. One thing leads to another. Mother Nature always finds a way. We'll end up talking about it on a future episode of the O'Reilly Hardware podcast. Exactly. And even if we don't talk about it immediately, it, will, be there. it will tend to click spiral back to us. <laughs> it's always there. We'll be there in the internet ether. Yeah. David, you want to you wanna begin? Uh, sure. I have a pretty good one. 
this week, I think. I went on this pretty weird trip last week, getting really into, um, you heard of Volvels, V-O-L-V-E-L-L-E-S, Volvel. No. It's like, uh, you may have seen examples of them. They're like these like old school paper calculators that are like several paper wheels that are mounted on top of each other that rotate around like a brad in the middle. And they use them for like mm, mm-hmm, pregnancy mm-hmm. calculators and like flight computers and like all this other stuff. Um, right, right. But I've been really into them in the past week. I learned that um, the first examples of these types of computers is what, which is what people uh, use to do computate, you know, complicated uh, computations um, before there were, you know, silicon-based computers. And it kind of started in in the Arabic golden ages around the 11th and 12th century. And then, you know, hmm. we've started getting them combined with nomograms. And, you know, nomograms are these, um, like, charts which describe, you know, like a nomogram, like, have you ever seen a Smith chart for, like, RF engineering or something like that? It's, like, a big circle thing with lots of weird curves on it. And you can kind of plot between the curves and figure out where it is. Anyway, point being, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I got really into these, and I discovered that the Amateur Radio Relay League, or ARRL, uh, published a series of these types of tools back in the 1930s called lightning calculators. And they have a series of them, type A through type F, um, that like are made so that you can uh, quickly accomplish different types of electrical engineering um, hmm. equations. And there's one which looks really awesome for doing Ohm's law. And so I combine this with the other thing I've been interested in lately, which is I got one of those Silhouette Cameo uh, CNC vinyl and cardstock cutter things which is awesome by the way holy crap it's an amazing tool have you guys <laughs> used this tool ezra uh, i haven't actually used one myself you should really check it out i'd like never even these guys i guess they're like a company out of utah so like they're not in the whole silicon valley tech scene thing but they've got like really awesome products and they have like an amazing workflow for like if you want to it's mostly targeted at like craft people and scrapbookers and uh, and so it's pretty amazing because you can just really like import DXFs or things from Illustrator or whatever, or whatever. And it has a little computer controlled knife that you can cut stuff out of vinyl or sticker stuff or cardstock or, you know, thin fabric um, or whatever. It's got this dope uh, cutting mat where you can like put your thing, your piece down on the cutting mat and then take a picture. And it's got optical registration marks and then it lines it up in the software and then you just put the whole cutting mat in and it knows how to cut the thing out. So anyway, so I found a picture, a high-resolution scan of one of these lightning calculators on the internet, and I recreated it. Um, Whoa. Although I re- I just recreated it from the one picture. So you can see under some of, on the original wheel here, there's like actually some of the, the, the numbers are missing. Whoa. So I'm trying to find somebody who has like an original copy of this so that I can make a proper Photoshop. Um, but I put all the documentation. Oh, yeah. So this thing, I guess I should describe it to the listeners who aren't looking at what I'm showing you. But it's a calculator for finding Ohm's law. <laughs> so it's basically like um, if you've got like power and voltage and current and resistance, this thing lets you find the other two if you already know two. So like to demo, if I'm trying to figure out like an LED current or something like that, I would set this little current situation here to 20 milliamps and then go around onto this scale with the pointer and read and be like, okay, say it's like, you know, I'm going to have like two point whatever volts going through. And then I line up the the thingy there, and it tells me what the resistance in ohms should be. And so you can kind of solve it backwards and forwards. But anyway, but I made this on Photoshop and cut it all out on my Silhouette Cameo and put all the files up on GitHub if anybody's into it. Um, I'm David Craner on GitHub. That sounds awesome. Uh, so that's what I've been into lately, last week. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, what sort of um, 
you know, hand trigonometry went into creating that. Yeah. So I was talking to some people. I was talking to Jeff Lieberman about it. Um, Have you met Jeff Lieberman? He like used to host that. Yeah. Yeah. He used to host that time warp show on, uh, on discovery. And he's just kind of like the local, he's got like four degrees from MIT or something. He's kind of like the local, like Zen master slash, um, really hardcore engineer guy who who works on a lot of really amazing um tech art projects but i was asking him about it if he knew anything because then mm. i started thinking like how the heck do you even design a slide rule right so we were talking about it and i guess that um the main trick is that you can see how all the numbers on the scale here are kind of arranged on a lo- log logarithmic pattern log scale and uh-huh, so uh-huh. because you know ohm's law is like v equals ir that's a multiple that's a multiplication thing um, but I guess if you're rotating opposing circles against each other, you're kind of relating them in a, like a linear fashion. So I think the trick is, is if you convert everything into the log domain, then um, multiplication becomes multiplication becomes addition. And so that's why hmm. I think graphically all the scales are on like a log scale um, because of the way that the thing actually is laid out. And that's about as far as I've gotten into understanding. Oh, wow. Some of these things get really complicated and I have no idea how they came up with the curves or anything, but... The um, things we did without the internet. Yeah, the the people who who designed that stuff had to understand like math at a fundamental level. Yeah, it's logarithms true. at least. It's true. <laughs> I have a couple of uh, a couple of beautiful old slide rules. You know, they had a lot of like bakelite in them, and um, bakelite's great. One of them was my was my grandfather's, and the other one I just got on eBay because you can buy these old like Faber Castell, yeah, you know, German slide rules on eBay for for not much money. And I recommend that everyone who listened to this podcast uh, do that. Yeah. So, uh, John or Ezra, who wants to go next? I can go next. All right, John, what do you what do you have? So, I've been looking at uh, at the poles of inaccessibility, which are uh, the areas on land that are the farthest from from the coast. So, you you take land and then you and then you just draw sort of inclines uh, as you go in from it, and you you wind up at a point which is you know the farthest from any from any coastline. So, in 1958. The Soviets reached the pole of inaccessibility of Antarctica, which was a monumental undertaking, especially in that era. And um, they built this weird little hut with a tower with um, a bust of Lenin on top of it, naturally. And um, like many Antarctic research camps, it was abandoned uh, pretty soon thereafter. But the statue of Lenin remains. And periodically, you know, adventurers... uh, go out to Antarctica and and locate this bust of Lenin, which is now almost buried in, you know, the drifting snows of Antarctica. And it has this really mystical kind of Ozymandian aspect Sounds to it. Sounds kind of like something that Indiana Jones would come across, like the secret the secret Soviet, like Antarctic, like, you know, geo geonatural phenomenon observatory that also has something to do with, you know, ancient peoples, but also aliens. Right, exactly, exactly, and like this, you know, he would wonder, uh, he he would he would wonder at the bust of Lenin and go like, why was it built that way? It seems <laughs> yeah. so unlikely. And then he would tip it back, and yeah. then uh, you know, Joseph Stalin's frozen remains turn out to be underneath, yes. along with a hoard of gold. <laughs> so there there are good lists online of these you know Antarctic camps that have been abandoned, and and then you can find people's accounts of of rediscovering them, and a lot of them are just an empty oil drum here or there uh, but some of them have old buildings and because it's very dry and very cold on most of Antarctica they, they end up being preserved very effectively and, and a few of them are basically just you know eerie snapshots of how explorers lived in uh, you know 1915 wow 
So that's my click spiral. Um, we'll have links where you can uh, read people's accounts of visiting Lenin's bust in the middle of Antarctica on um, in the show notes that accompany this episode. So uh, Ezra, what is your click spiral? My click spiral is Inco terms. So Inco term stands for international commercial terms, and they're a set of predetermined commercial rules that are put together by the International Chamber of Commerce. And Inco terms are really interesting because they set out all of the kind of parameters that go into any international trade transaction. So let's say that um, I am in the United States and I'm buying a bunch of products from China. Um, choosing an INCO term will define who pays for shipping, who brings it to the port, who pays for insurance, at what point does the sort of custody of those objects go from uh, one entity to the other. So. They're very, very specific, and each transaction that might happen may have a different need for a different kind of INCO term. There's a great Wikipedia article, so I would start there, and what you'll see is there is a ton of language that is extremely specific and uncommon. Uh, some of the INCO terms are things like free on board, X works, delivered at place. You know, as a normal human, those sound like they make sense, but when you get into the nitty gritty, there's a lot of terminology and technical accounting and import export rules you have to be aware of. But ultimately, it comes down to who owns this object and who pays for its processing at the various stages of trade. So definitely start the Wikipedia, but you can read the formal definitions on the International Chamber of Commerce website. It's so interesting to me because you can look at these rules and understand um, a sense or get a sense of how complicated international trade really is. And these are kind of the, the agreements and policies and practicalities of uh, the world, this, this globalized world that we live in. And to me, that's really interesting. So what do you think are the, so what do you think are the most important things for someone who's just getting into doing international shipping? So if I was just getting into international shipping, I would lean heavily on the vendors and partners uh, that I was working with. So uh, if you're thinking particularly about manufacturing and you're looking to import products into your country, um, I would talk with uh, your vendors. Hopefully you have a really good relationship with them and they've been through this before. And when it comes to INCO terms and the kinds of shipping terms that you need to, need to figure out, I would just honestly ask them, you know, what is typical for this type of transaction? The factors you want to be looking at are things like, you know, at what moment does the ownership of the product move from you to me? Uh, who pays for shipping? How do we choose which carrier to use? Who pays for insurance? Who pays for duties and other import fees? If you're doing uh, international exporting, uh, it probably would make sense to talk to a, a lawyer or a import export agent who can really understand what exactly you're trying to do and make sure that you're following all the rules. Probably you're not going to have time to spend weeks or months reading through all these rules yourself. And, and even if you did, uh, they're so detailed that working with an expert is really a good move in this case. One other resource that I'd love to draw people's attention to is a publication called the Harmonized Tariff Schedule that's put together by the U.S. federal government. And it is this rich and detailed database of every categorized product as far as import and export is concerned. You can look up almost anything and figure out what the taxes and duties are for that specific product and for each specific country. And so if you're going into importing 
this is a good place to figure out what exactly the taxes and fees you'll have to pay and gives you a sense of the real costs of the, of the work that you're doing. The other uh, feature of it that's kind of challenging for an entrepreneur or a hardware startup is that oftentimes the products that we buy and sell aren't categorized very well in this chart. So at OMC, we sell a desktop CNC machine, but there's certainly no category because uh, that is such a new product. There's no category for that in the HTS. CNC machines as listed are more like industrial grinding machines, and that's not really what we sell. Maybe what we sell is more like a desktop printer or a 3D printer. And so you know, it's good to work with the right lawyers and advisors to make sure that you're following the law. Um, you want to build your business following the rules as best as possible to make sure that you know, you're protecting yourself and, and you're protecting your customers. The other thing that I've sometimes click spiraled into that's similar is the uniform commercial code, which is uh, which is really interesting because it is not it is not in itself a law. It's just a set of suggested laws that are compiled by a standing committee of basically you know law school professors and judges, and um, every state except Louisiana has adopted it. So that like the really low level you know, nuts and bolts of commerce, like how contracts are enforced, how disputes are mediated, you know, how how transfers of ownership work, stuff like that um, can be standardized across the states. So that's it for this week's Click Spiral. Um, if, as we said before, if you, the listener, have a Click Spiral that you would like to share with us and have us learn more about and discuss on the podcast, please email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, Ezra, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. If people want to find you on the internet, uh, where do they look? You can find Other Machine Company at othermachine.co. And on Twitter, I am R. It's A-H-H-R-R-R. A-H-H-R-R-R. That's right. Does that, is, are, are you like a really early Twitter user? A lot of people who got on it really early have some sort of like inside joke as their handle. You know, I think that was something that I'd just been using for a while as a teenager and I never really grew out of it. So was that your aim here, screen? Here we yeah. are. <laughs> here we are. Your handle. All right. Well, live journal, actually. Yeah, live, live journal. journal. What's your mood? Yeah. <laughs> well, back to the past. Right, Blasting right. Past. Yeah. Sweet. Well, thanks very much, Ezra. This has been very interesting. I'm looking forward to, to, to checking out the other Mill Pro. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be on. All right. Thanks, Ezra. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>